Hello. Hey, John. Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. Good, good. No complaints good. today. But I just... How is your... I, well, go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask how your Firecracker 4th was, but it sounded like you were leading into something. Uh, yeah. I mean, we didn't do anything for the 4th. We didn't... Um, you know, we went over, we saw a little parade at a friend's house, uh, but it was pouring, pouring rain here. Oh. And I'm pretty sure every fireworks show in Austin was rained out. Our neighbors oh. down the street sort of did a pathetic little attempt at launching a few fireworks around 10, 15 in a break between clouds passing over. And that was about it. Oh. What about you? Do anything big? Were you King Neptune for anything? No, it, uh, you know, I, uh, one of the funny things about being King Neptune last year was that all the things, the local Seattle holiday summer events that I normally would kind of go, ugh, I don't want to go down to that big park in the hot sun with yeah. all those people and, you know, just like Cheetos and Mountain Dew, like just, uh, like I had to do them last year because yeah. I was the, I was the, um, mascot. And I, I had a great time doing them. Every, t- every one of them, I, as I left the event, I would say to whoever was standing around me, or sometimes I would just say it to my hat, like, <laughs> remember how fun that was. Like, you know, next year when, it, when this comes around again, like, make sure, you, make sure you go and do it. Right. And as the fourth came looming, I was like, oh, boy, I could probably call up Seafair and get – VIP treatment as the former king and and I just didn't do it and Friday uh, or whatever it wasn't Friday the fourth I woke up and I said you know what I need to do I need to rearrange my toolboxes I have <laughs> yeah. I have th- I have three toolboxes and they've gotten all tools strewn all over the place I need to consolidate them and get them all you know get them back and so I spent the first part of the day sorting through stuff and like this this screwdriver is hashed. It's, it's had, it's, it's had a good run and now it's going into the. But wasn't that like your great, 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 great grandfather's screwdriver that he hand carved the handle to and forged the end to, and you couldn't possibly get rid of it because it came through the civil war and was passed down generation to generation. I mean, how do you part with it? I would never get rid of those. Oh, but and and partly because those tools aren't hashed mm. they still work great it's the ones that were made out of like crappy <laughs> like the like the one you bought forged. when your car was broken down and you big you bought like the toolkit from the gas station to fix it yeah, yeah right or you know i've had i've had workmen come out to a variety of places i've built a couple of places um and Tools get left behind. I've got a whole, not a set of tools, but like a whole set of drivers that I don't know where they came from. They clearly were somebody's. And at some point along the way, some workman left them in in the barn or, you know, in the basement. And I couldn't tell you who they belong to. It's not, a, they're not things I would have bought, but they're, but they are still in good working order. No, it's all the cheap. All the cheap tools, cheap tools find their way in. Just like you say, you had to stop and get a wrench because something. Um, 
so I got rid of all that. And then pretty soon it was like seven o'clock at night and nothing, you know, no plan was made. Um, you know, I, I, for years I lived in Seattle without a car and, and so what I did was dictated by where I could walk, which was great because I lived in the center of town. And then I had a Vespa for several years, so I could go right to the center of big events because police just don't, they don't see scooters. Their eyes are, are focused on other things. So I would just like, I'd, I'd wheel right up to a, to a blockade where there are 10 cops and the road was all blocked, road closed signs. And I would just, and just kind of like, just walk my way right through the little the little barricades. And if anybody even looked at me, they would just kind of nod at me and I'd off, off I'd go (laughs) just go right, right to, you know, right to the heart of any, anything like that. Um, but anyway, so at like seven o'clock at night, I decided, yeah, I'm going to go into town. I'm going to watch the fireworks. And partly it was that my daughter who normally, kind of shrugs her shoulders at stuff. She was like, I want to see the fireworks. So we went in and got to some police barricade where they wouldn't let us go any further. And I, I called up something on my phone where I was like, no, I live at this address and showed him the address of something on the other side of the barricade. And he was like, oh yes, you know, follow, you know, play through. And they moved the barricade for me and stuff. I mean, it's not, it's not cheating. That's actually where I was going. Mm -hmm. But, um, Watch the fireworks. We had some some spaghetti. We watched an episode of after my daughter went to bed. We watched an episode of Black Mirror. Oh yeah. So altogether, you know, altogether a great a great holiday, a great event, celebrating our nation's birthday. Well, good. Yeah, yeah. That's maybe more of a description of a pretty mundane afternoon than than that anybody would have fun. asked for. I mean, it's all that counts. It was a nice, nice time. Yeah. That's all you want. I, I, I regret not, I regret not following through on my King Neptune, like, like commitment to, yeah, your oath to embrace the day and do more and be more. It's really funny because at the end of last summer, if they had said, will you just be King Neptune next year? Which they kind of jokingly did several times. Um, I would have said yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, And yet now, like by the time it got to the spring, whatever that, yeah, that, that feeling had faded enough that when they asked me to, to sort of coronate the new king, I was like, you bet happy to pass the crown on to the next deserving tenant. And you're saying that was sort of your opportunity to maybe continue it on and say, no, I'm not going to do that. I want to be the next person or I want to stay. I want to stay on. Is there a rule? Is it, does it have to trade over every year? Yeah. I mean, there's no precedent for it. Not. And I think that, I think that a lot of the time, certainly from, from up the ladder, I, we may have talked about this before, but 
but Seafair is a big operation. It it um, it's it it's sort of a summer long festival. There's probably two hundred events, and so I'm not entirely sure how it functions as a business. You know, it gets corporate sponsorship. Um, I'm you know they have a big office downtown. They have tens of employees. Um, hundreds of contractors and volunteers, but the 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 role of King Neptune, it seemed to me, was envisioned by the, those people, the people running it, as something where you just kind of quietly stood there wearing a crown. They needed a crown. They needed someone to stand under a crown. Mm-hmm. Basically, you're right. They just needed a, your presence there. It's not like you were doing anything. Right. They you just had to show up. They wanted a local celebrity to give it to give it a little bit of gloss and then stand under the crown and wave and then at a certain point, you know, knight people and so forth. They didn't want someone to really inhabit the role um, because it's just not how <clears throat> grownups behave. <laughs> there's not – in that world, certainly, there's not a tradition of cosplay – and everybody's having fun. It's that kind of fun that 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 people in the I don't I, I don't even know how to describe the world, but like the straight world, the the snorks. It's the kind of fun <laughs> that they have, which is like they're always kind of doing business, and they're always there's a big smile, and they're always like loving it. In quotes, loving it, but like they're not. They don't – there's not very much like actual joshing or um, what I would describe as fun having. It's always serious. You know, there's – at the, at, the, at the core of those people, it's always serious because business, you know, because corporate sponsors and because we don't want to offend anybody but we also like there's – there are a lot of, there's a lot of opportunity and I mean, it's, it's hard for me to, to put it exactly into words why that world is or how that world thinks about itself. I think a, lo- a lot of the time I think of the, of the real world as spending a lot of time thinking about getting drunk, but there's a, another side of the real world, which spends a lot of time thinking about money and propriety. Yeah. And so it's a, you know, it's a land because I live in a world where, I mean, a lot of the people I know would not wear mismatched socks Mm. because they just think it's dumb. They, you know, like it's a, it's a, they're they're concerned someone will look at it and think, wow, you, you were so confused that you couldn't find matching socks. No, they're not afraid of that. No, you know, like John Hodgman is not afraid of somebody looking at him and saying, Oh, you've got mismatched socks right, on. Right. Uh, you're confused or whatever. He's just, he has a sense of himself and his own, uh, who he is that he doesn't, that's just not who he is. Right. But he's not doing it because he's afraid that someone is going to 
think he is not serious or not, or he's going to lose business as a result of it. If anything, he's afraid that it will be just one more invitation for somebody to come up and go, uh, hello, sir. I noticed that you have mismatched socks. And I just <laughs> wanted to show you that I too have mismatched socks. Like he just, it, he doesn't need, but you know, he does, he does funny things with his clothes or he has, he's, he's grown to do it. But so most of the people I know, if they're going to wear mismatched socks, uh, it would be intentional and, and a lot of the people I know just wouldn't do it because it's, that's not the kind of flair they're trying to put on. But the world that I'm talking about are people that if they walked out of the house and looked down and had accidentally grabbed mismatched socks, it, they would, they would be embarrassed and would spend the day kind of like embarrassedly going, Oh, well, you know, you'll, you may notice that my socks are mismatched. It was not intentional. <laughs> just like, just like awkward and trying to make a joke of it. But you could tell they were actually really, they had, um, it was a faux pas. And so the, that, that universe of faux pas, the, the sort of world of country club faux pas, the things that you don't talk about, the things that you don't, that you just don't do, that people just don't do. That's always been a very uncomfortable place for me. Uh, because I don't, I, I don't really understand. Like I, I, I have the rule book. I know what those things are, but I just don't understand why it's such a big deal. Never did. And so a lot of last summer I spent kind of, you know, more or less around people who were, who were comfortable in that world, living in that world, going to Rotary Club meetings, right. and downtown hotels and so forth. And like the military people, their code is so, it's just so straight. Like if you're in the Navy, you don't ever put on mismatched socks because you only have one kind of sock. Right. It's not, you would never even have a chance. And those people tend to be, military people tend to, at least in my experience, have a pretty good sense of humor about stuff. Now, who knows what they're really feeling inside? But, you know, if you come up and like squirt them in the face with a water, with a, with a like lapel flower that's got, that's got water in it. They're going to laugh it off. You think that's just because of all the sort of razzing that they might get in boot camp or, or just the general mentality of yeah, I being, think it's a, being in close proximity to so many other people, most of whom are guys all the time. I think it's, I think it is a lot of, of fraternity, um, hijinks that they're, that's just part of the, part of the game. I think it's also that if somebody like insults you or teases you or, or pranks you mm-hmm. and other people are watching, if you're in the military and particularly if you're a military officer, mm-hmm. you can't overreact. Right. Because you're, you're constantly being assessed whether or not you have leadership capabilities or whatever. You can't, you can't haul off and hit somebody. You can't yell at them. You can't freak out. You have to keep cool. And it's not a pose. I think they, I think they learn it. But anyway, a lot of the like 
we'd love you to do this again next year stuff that I got last year was sort of said with a little bit of, there was a, I always felt a little, a little tinge to it that, um, that was, that that was ironic, you know, that was, that was really them saying, In a, in a in a different world, the job that you're doing would be the job that we had asked you to do. But we actually kind of wanted you to do something a little bit less performative. Mm-hmm. Just sort of show up and hit your marks. And, and my attitude about it was always like, you're asking me to do this for free. I'm going to do it how I, I'm going to have fun. <laughs> right. You're going to do it your way. Yeah. Like if you were paying me, you could tell me what to do. Um. And they did, knew did that they, too. Were they all right with that? Oh yeah, sure. It's just a vibe, right? You know, it's just a vibe. Like, like the, you know, the president of the baseball team. If the mascot of the baseball team comes up into the president's box and goes honk honk and you know goofs on him, and the TV cameras are pointed at him, he's gonna like laugh and look like he's having fun. But as soon as the TV cameras are off, he's going to go, get this guy out of here. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a little bit of that. I mean, and, and the thing is, Seafair is full of that kind. There are clowns. There are pirates. There's all this stuff. But, you know, I, I was kind of I, – I wanted to be up on the dais. I wanted to give a speech is what I wanted to do. Right. I wanted to give a speech everywhere we went. And there was, I was never given the opportunity to give a speech because the speeches were reserved for, you know, business. And I wanted to give us, I had a whole speech I could give on the history of Seafair and how much it means to the community and how much, how much it means to us that you're all here today, you know, that type of thing. Sure. And, uh. And that's just not they, – they did not – Seafair did not see the opportunity uh, to have me – to have an ambassador that was a little bit more comfortable ambassadoring. So anyway, it's nice to, it's nice to pass, the, pass the crown. I just have to remember not to, not to go back into thinking like all those – summertime Seattle events are just things that other people do because I really did enjoy going downtown and going to the parades and you know, there there's what got you out of the house. It sounds like it got me out of the house. Thank you, Dan. It's a good way of putting it. Well, we would like to say thank you very much to Casper. That's right. These are the folks that make the uh, lovely mattresses. I have one of these things and uh, they are really great. Now, depending on when you're listening to this show, you may be lucky enough to get in on one of these awesome deals that they're working on right now for a very limited time. They're letting you save up to $225 off your order. This is a 4th of July thing and it ends July 9th, 2018. But before I tell you more about that, I want to tell you about these awesome mattresses, this is, this is what makes Casper great, is that they studied beds and they said, you know what, we can make a better mattress. We're going to make three different kinds of mattresses. There's the original Casper, there's the Innovative Wave, 
and there's the Essential. Now, the regular Casper mattress, that's the one that I have that I love. It combines multiple supportive memory foams that gives you a quality sleep surface with the right amounts of both sink and bounce. It's super comfortable. I love that one. I have not tried the Wave, but this one is a really special one that's a premium support that mirrors the natural shape of your body. All of these mattresses, they have a breathable design. They help you sleep cool. They help you regulate your body temperature throughout the night so you don't wake up hot, you don't wake up shivering. And they give you 100 nights risk-free to try it out. So when this bed arrives, it comes in this really cool box. You open the box and you cut the plastic. They even give you a little tool. You cut the plastic and the bed unfurls itself and sort of inhales and becomes, it's not an air mattress. It's just how I'm describing it. It, it breathes and expands out of this little box shape into a beautiful mattress. Then, then you get a hundred nights to sleep on it. If any point in those hundred nights, you're not a thousand percent happy. You call them, it's hassle-free. They come and pick it up and take it away. So there really is no risk and no reason not to try it. And especially now, you have this 4th of July special thing going on. It goes through July 9th. You can save up to $225 if you visit casper.com slash savings. Normally, you, you would use our special URL, but for this limited time, we want you to go to casper.com slash savings. I have to say that terms and conditions apply to those savings, and then it's for a limited time only, but go check it out. You can save more money right now, basically, than ever. So if you've been holding out, thinking to yourself, well, maybe I'll get one, maybe I'll try it, this is the time to do it. So go check this out right now, casper.com slash savings. I think you're going to love it as much as I do. Thanks very much to Casper for making this show possible. My Keurig is malfunctioning. Oh, what's wrong with it? Well, it's only making small shots. It's not making big shots. You mean if you switch it to the larger setting, it just doesn't work? Nothing comes out? No, it just makes small ones. Oh, no matter what, it makes small. So even when set to large, it still makes small. That's right. That's right. How long have you had it? Oh, I've had it for a while, but I, but most of that time it has not been plugged in. Mm. I've probably only made 50 cups of coffee through it. Five zero. Five zero. Yeah. And we've had a couple of those and they, they do seem to fail Yeah. over the years. Oh, that's too bad. So I don't know what to tell you. You may be stuck with the small ones. You may just have to drink more coffee, but less coffee. Yeah, right. More coffee, less coffee. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I was um, what I was going to tell you, uh, and this is a thing I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on this, <clears throat> get oh, your, oh, your take hear. on it. Let's hear. I'm sorry that I, you know, I kind of, di- I went on to this uh, pretty, I mean, uncharacteristically boring digression at the start I, I of the show. I think it was. Uh, oh, you think it's characteristically uh, boring? No, I think it was interesting. I think it's fascinating. Oh, okay. So. Here's the question for you. My, I was uh, saying hi to a friend of mine I hadn't talked to for a little while. He lives in Florida. And it was the 4th of July. And you know you, you sometimes reach out to people that you haven't talked to in a while. And you yeah. say, happy 4th of July. How are you? What's new? And he said, uh, he said oh, you know, he's, I sent him a picture, the same one I sent to you, uh-huh. of me and my kids standing watching a parade. And I should describe it. I should describe it. 
Okay. Your kids are both wearing red, white, and blue shirts. Uh-huh. Both of them pretty prominently Old Navy branded. Probably. That's probably what I'm my wife surprised. got for them. I don't have anything to do with those shirts. And then you, right there in the center, big as life, wearing a Magnum PI Hawaiian shirt mm-hmm. and drinking from the the steel uh, like bartender <laughs> cup uh-huh. where where like mixed drinks are shaken like i guess it's the shaker <laughs> no, no it's is that what it is nah. or it's like the milkshake cup no it's a it's a yeti uh cooler cup mug thermos thing oh i see you know you pretty, put something in there that keeps it cold and keeps it cold pretty indistinguishable from a from like just yeah the milk no i i think you could think of that as like what you might mix a martini and it looks kind of like that except it's it's insulated and it's thermal and it has a lid and it's by Yeti and you don't mix drinks in it, but otherwise exactly right, like that <laughs> at, a, at a distance. That was, yes, I no, I to totally me. can see that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you were like, Hey, happy 4th of July. And I felt, I felt like not enough people, uh, sent me like a happy 4th of July card uh, like that a t- tweet card. Yeah. Well, the response I got from him was like, he, his the equivalent picture from him. I said, what's new? And he said, well, um, my house was broken into and my car was stolen. Oh. And I said, you're kidding. And he said, no. And uh, so they, they go on a uh, trip, usually not always for the 4th of July, but usually in the summertime where they'll, they'll go on a little trip and they'll go to like a beachy area from they live in central florida and they'll drive out to some kind of one of the beaches one of the florida beaches they'll go and stay there and apparently while they were gone i shouldn't laugh because it's pretty horrible somebody broke into their house and uh but that's not i mean that's not crazy for that to happen like you 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 hear of that and it happens and it happened to you john and it happens to other people all the time right it's the way that their house was broken into Oh, I love this kind of story. Uh, okay, so I um, I said, you're joking. And he said, I'm reading the text now. He said, no. He said, uh, I said, well, don't you guys have a security system? Mm-hmm. And he said, yes. Mm-hmm. I said, how did they get around it? And what did they, what did they take? And he said, well, he, for, he answered, he said, they took cash. Listen to what they took. Cash, an electric right. razor and charging station. Some yeah. some of my wife's purses, some random bags, and then help themselves to our food and coffee and entertainment, watch TV, smoked some cigarettes, and then left. And I said, well, wait, how did they get around the alarm? And he said, instead of going through doors or windows, they just cut a hole right through the wall. And then before I could respond, he said, yes, they cut a hole through the wall. And he has sent me pictures, which I will share with you in a moment. But it's not just one hole. It looks like they cut one hole that allowed them to get into their house from the outside. But then, and here's the weird part. They cut another hole. And he said the exit hole was from my daughter's room to the garage where the car was. Um, but, th- but there was a door to the garage also? Yes. Uh, so I don't know why, but I'm, I'm saving these out of messages now so that I can send them to you in messages in a second. 
I'm just super confused. I haven't had a chance to call him. He was busy today. I'm going to call him later. I wanted to have this information for the show because I'd like to do my due diligence before the show uh, and have a complete, complete story for you. But I'm sending these photos to you now uh, so that you can see I'm confused about the whole thing. I don't have any answers. I'm very confused. I don't understand any of this. And I wanted to ask you, is this a thing that people do? Like they cut through, you might say, what kind of wall for people who, who don't know what most Florida houses is the outside of most Florida homes is usually a stucco or a faux stucco, which is usually made from some kind of, I guess, a concrete. And then there's, you know, a lot of homes are, are concrete block, but a lot are wood frame. I'm assuming his is wood frame. Yeah. But it looks like the size, I mean, to cut, this isn't something you do like in a two minute operation. This would take a long time to cut through here. Are you seeing these pictures that I sent you? So, and I did, by the way, I did ask him for permission. He said, yes, don't share any personal details, but you can, you can discuss the the crime and the nature of the crime and talk about what happened. So looking at it, they didn't cut. They kicked. You think that's kicking that got through? Yeah. Yeah. They kicked, they kicked or they, or they hit it with a hammer. They're like, uh, because the outside shot, they went through plaster, right? Plaster, which was not laid on lath, but appears to have been, it's that it's plaster that was laid on chicken wire. Basically, Yeah. I can see the chicken wire in the photo on the outside of walls that were made. I mean, I, I'm not even sure I see framing. This might be you in know, between the framing, I'm thinking. Oh, well, for sure. Like the one between your daughter, the daughter's bedroom and the garage. Yeah. You can see just, the framing in there. Yeah. They just kicked through the wallboard and there wasn't any insulation on either side. So they just, oh, it does a little bit look. <laughs> I mean, if, if you're like breaking wallboard, it's not that hard to break it and and you know, like come up with a clean kind of cleanish edge like that. But no, if they had a sawzall or something, but it's baffling, right? Well, so, so not knowing anything else about it, my suspicion is that they are tweakers and tweakers famously do not have the best judgment. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are a tweaker, you will get an idea. Can you explain what a tweaker is for those who, who may not know? Yeah. Like, um, so methamphetamine is, um, is a very powerful drug. It is a drug that is an amphetamine, but, mm-hmm. a, but, a, but a, like a concentrated one that you smoke or shoot up. And it creates an emphatic state. Um, you really do feel like a superhero. You feel s- just super powerful. Like all your ideas are really smart. Is genius. this one that, that you tried back in the day? Oh yes. Yeah. I went through a phase, uh, on my, uh, on my like, um, rapid descent, uh, when I had decided that just being like an alcoholic drunk wastoid wasn't enough and it was time to really like hitch my wagon to a star. Oh, <laughs> um, 
man. where I just where I would just follow any stranger to a third location if that stranger seemed to be um like operating in adventure mode. Mm-hmm. And on one of those adventures followed a person to a third location and that person at at a, at a then a further location that person taught me how to freebase which is um a process where you heat a powdered drug until it you you heat it without applying flame directly to it you don't burn it you heat it on you run a flame on the other side of say for instance a piece of tin foil or something where the 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 powdered drug is nesting there and it will vaporize it will sort of melt and then turn to it, it you know it turns to uh, yeah, v- not vapor. It's like a that. smoke kind of. Yeah, smoke. Let's just call it smoke. And then you inhale that through a, some kind of tube. You know, um, so you're. It's a way to. It's a way to take powdered drugs into your body without instead of injecting is that would that without, be the other option yeah without melting them down and injecting them or mm. without snorting them is mm, another mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. Do those drugs freebasing kind of gets it into your into your bloodstream a little faster and and uh and it was uh, you know it was a powerful feeling i knew that it was i knew that it was bad for me but it was um but methamphetamine is is inexpensive relative to cocaine and very much more of an intense rush than than most other drugs. And it's the, pretty addictive too, right? Except, exception of crack. Those drugs are addictive, but you know, when we talk about addiction, um, I think, you know, people in the lay community imagine that like you do a drug five times and then you're just caught in its death grip and you can't shake it. You know, addiction is a thing that, lives inside of us. These drugs are powerfully addictive partly because they are powerful drugs and the, and your experience, how you take that experience, what that experience does for you says a lot about whether you're going to try it again. And I, and they're probably, you know, by the time you're free basing meth, (laughs) you've already made some choices in life. (laughs) It's, (laughs) you know, it's probably for most people not the first thing they try. Right. Like the first right, thing right. they try is like a California cooler or a Michelob light or something. Um, so by the time you're doing it, you've already decided like, hey, I'm gonna, you know, I'm along for the ride. But I'm, uh, I'm sure there are tons and tons of people that are like, well, that was fucked up, or that was that was intense. I don't need to do that again. Right. Uh, and then there are other people who are like, well, why don't we try that one more time? And Presumably, a ton of people who are like, that's great. Where do I get more? Um, I was in the second category. I never was much of a – I didn't like speedy drugs typically. Um, but when I, went, when, I, when I went with this person to this, to this fourth location and, and tried this, it came at a weak point in my life. Mm-hmm. And I did become someone who said – where do I get more of this? You know, my, my, my typical thing 
with those kind of drugs was like, oh, that was great. You know, we should do that again sometime. But this was a this was an episode where I said, uh, let's let's ride this lightning. And so, and we're talking about this is about six months before I ended up getting sober. And it wasn't clear to me that I, you know, I didn't know I was going to get sober six months later, but for the last six months before I got sober, and this is part of the reason I did get sober, uh, all bets were off. And so I, I, you know, the first several times I was in a group of people, I was doing this drug with, uh, in a social setting and, you know, in a social setting, you're sitting there with somebody else and you're like, I've got a great idea. Here's what, here's what we got to do. We have to build a, you know, we have to build a tower. And once we get to the top of the tower, then we'll, we'll put a zip line and the zip line will go to the bank and then we'll zip in and we'll steal all the money from the bank. <laughs> and with that money, we'll, you know, we'll buy an army of robots and the robots will do the crimes for us. And we'll just sit there just raking in the money from our robot criminals. And the other person's going like, yes, totally. And, and, you know, and probably for the most, you know, most of the time talking over you with their own version of the scheme. And it's not, the schemes are idiotic, but, but they feel very real when you're in that state of mind. I sat with a guy and we talked about the band we were going to put together one time. And the, uh, the drug provider kept coming into the room. And the thing is that these, the, the culture here is one where you keep the blinds down and part of the reason you keep the blinds down is that the day goes into night and then into day again. And you kind of don't want to know that. Uh, I talked to this guy about starting a band together and we probably talked for 11 hours. My God. Uh, just sitting on the floor in a room, kind of re-upping periodically until this, you know, until it was the next day. Just talking about like, oh, this band is going to be amazing. We're going to fucking, and I, you can't duplicate the headspace, I can't sit here and tell you what the hell we were talking about for 11 hours right. about about a band and both of us talking a mile a minute about this band we were going to put together. It's a – if you think drunk people are boring, um, <laughs> like <laughs> the only way you could do that, talk nonstop for 11 hours about a band you were going to start is that your thoughts were completely disjointed, not connected. You were repeating yourself. You were – you know – it can't. It could not be fun for us for a straight person. Only to sit only in. someone else on the same type of drug would be able to appreciate it, right? And crack cocaine is a similar. Um, crack cocaine is a similar experience, although for my money, uh, the cocaine high feels a little bit sort of cleaner. Um still an intense rush with the cocaine high. You feel like I won the Olympics. I can win every Olympics. <laughs> Whereas with methamphetamine, <laughs> you're just like, I am a robot made out of lasers. <laughs> but the, but the problem is, um, when you are really, really tweaking on either drug, um, you will do more. Of it. If someone comes in and says, here's more, you will say yes. You lose all ability to say, well, I've got to be at work tomorrow. And so, you know, good drug dealers know once you've got 
some folks on the line, you just keep giving them drugs until their money's gone. And you don't need sleep on those drugs either. So you could go 48 hours, just somebody just shoveling drugs at you and taking your money for them. And you're, you're sitting on the floor. You don't want any food. You don't want sleep. You do want cigarettes in my experience, but, but at that point in life, you want cigarettes all the time. Cigarettes are the one thing that go with every drug. There's no, I've never been so high or so messed up that a cigarette didn't also figure into it somehow. Um, but like famously when you're smoking crack, this is something that happens a lot and, and definitely has happened to me enough so that it's a phenomenon. Mm -hmm. You get it into your head as you, as you run out of crack, you get it into your head that you dropped some somewhere along the line. You dropped some, it was, you have little, you have little rocks, little sort of crystalline right. rocks of crack. And this is just you or this is other people as well. This is other people. You get it into your head, you dropped some and there's some in the carpet somewhere or on the floor. And so you start. Have, did to, you ever really drop it, or was it always just a fear? Like a, is this like a weed paranoia kind of thing? Is it like that? It's a. It's um, a desire for there to be more crack, so much so that you invent a scenario where you dropped some, and now you can find it, and so you end up on the floor, like pawing through the carpet or through the, or just through the dirt that's on the floor looking for little rocks that look, um, convincingly enough like crack that you put them in your pipe and smoke them. Right. Um, and there's no, you know, when you're sitting there with your, with your crack, it's, not it's not like you ever have such an abundance that you're just dropping rocks on the floor <laughs> and like whatever we'll get those later um but the conviction that you did drop some at somewhere along the way that you can't quite put your finger on is so strong i mean i've spent a lot of time with friends searching the floor for dropped crack and then smoking little white stones that you find <laughs> and feeling like, is that doing something? Definitely. It's definitely crack. It's not burning like crack. It's burning like a little st stone would just to say not burning. Um, but you're so, you know, you're so messed up. I had a, a friend in Washington, DC who sat in front of me smoking crack and he had, he, we didn't have a, a glass pipe. And so, um, we used a wood pipe, which is for marijuana, right? Like some koa co wood hippie pipe, but he was so, you know, he got so in his crack mind that he had, he'd burned the inside of this pipe to the point that the wood was burning. And this was <laughs> wood that was made like a pipe was made out of it. It wasn't meant to burn. Right. But he had scorched it. I mean, just subjected it to like so much flame 
that he was just smoking this, you know, he was just smoking embers of this wood pipe. So it, so it, it, it creates a super obsessive, mm. intense, obsessive mentality, um, that defeats logic. I sat down one time, um, because are you, I, are you aware that you're in that state at all? Or does it seem perfectly rational and normal? Uh, well, you know, you're high on drugs, so right. you know that you're not normal, but, but especially if you have another person, if you're doing drugs with other people and they can reinforce it in you, uh-huh. um, it can be a spiraling insanity. Uh, but you're not interested in it not being true. That's the, that's the funny thing about a lot of drugs, about a lot of mental illnesses, about a lot of just like in our culture now, obsessive political beliefs, obsessive, um, mentalities, whether or not it's true or not just doesn't interest you because you're convinced and if somebody comes along and says, well, here's a bunch of evidence that throws your conviction into question, you just don't want to hear. It's not that, you know, we, we have this, this tendency to think that, oh, if we just show the people the truth, that they'll change their views. But, you know, truth is malleable. And if you're really convinced, you, you're, you just, you, you tune out the truth and, if somebody had come and stood in the doorway and said, you guys are nuts. You did not drop any crack. You didn't have that much <laughs> to begin with and you didn't drop it. Uh, we would have just been like, shut the fuck up. You don't know. You don't know anything about what's happening here, which is that we are finding hidden reserves of crack on the, in the carpet. I, 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 I graduated from doing this socially to, um, going out finding, you know, I knew who the meth dealers were by this point, mm -hmm. just socially, even before I had become a meth user. And I remember going up to a, a guy, for instance, in a bar and like, Hey, you know, you got any meth? And the guy looking at me like, what you, you are buying meth. That seems unlikely. Be why? Because there's a certain, yeah, there's like a certain a, type and, and they knew me like they knew me as a, as a person in the town as a, as um, like if you're a meth dealer, you know who does meth and who doesn't. Right. And if you're a meth dealer, that's like hanging out in bars selling meth to people like rock clubs and stuff. Yeah. Where the meth people are like, oh, there's Jerry. Let's go get, you know, like his, his place of business is this bar. Well, you know the people that are in the bar. You know how to look through the room and and know who's doing drugs. And there were a couple of these guys I knew, like I was friendly with socially. I knew they were drug dealers, but there were drug dealers all around me. And I and I wanted to know eighty percent of the drug dealers because they had drugs I was interested in. But when I was now graduating to like now I'm talking to the meth dealers, but I'm talking to them as a client rather than as a just a guy standing there. They were like, oh, well, hello, hello, new friend, like hello, new potential uh, customer, like, <laughs> yes. And, and most of them knew that I didn't have, I wasn't like Mr. Mr. Moneybags. I wasn't somebody that they were going to, 
um, get rich off of, but I could find $15. Right. But so I started buying it and doing it myself by myself. Uh, because there's another, there's another very bad vibe that goes along with meth in a group of people, which is that when you first get a bunch of drugs and there are a bunch of people sitting around, you feel very generous. Everybody feels generous. Hey, you know, you know, you first, you know, maybe not quite that, but like, um, but it gets shared around. And then as the quantity of drugs remaining gets smaller and smaller, the circle starts to close and the people that weren't really that good of friends with you to begin with mm -hmm. start to be eyed with suspicion. And then pretty soon your best friend in the world, you're looking at them like you cut that line a little bit fatter for yourself than for me. Uh. And then as it gets really down in there, it gets very negative, very dangerously negative. Um, because these drugs bring out the worst kind of greed and covetousness. And if you can imagine, if you can imagine people searching shag carpet for dropped crack rocks, you can imagine five people sitting around a table where the drugs are gone, eyeing each other for who stole some who still has some that they're not sharing and it's in their pocket who, um, who took an extra line, right? Somewhere along the line, you don't remember when, but you're pretty sure that guy took an extra one. And that energy is terrifying, particularly if you're with people who are bandits you know, who have, who have, who've already crossed the line into being drug scourge people where violence isn't out of the question, where, where crime isn't, uh, isn't alien. And there have been several of those kitchen tables where I was just like, wow, I really want out of here but I also don't want to leave because I think that guy stole some of this meth and he's got it in his pocket. And as soon as I go, <laughs> right, he's going to bring it out. And as soon as I go, then they're all going to bring it out. You know, they're just waiting for me to leave. And those are, you know, those are real death spirals, especially when everybody's been awake all night and all the, and all day and into the following night. So, but the thing is, these drugs aren't expensive, so I just started getting them on my own and doing them alone, which I liked pretty well, actually. Um, and one time I sat down with a pencil and I was going to draw a picture. Um, I was you know, just going to draw, draw a picture, and I was going to draw a picture of myself freebasing meth. I was going to do like an art. Like it, uh, what looks staring in a mirror, very sort of like Renaissance painter style, just sort of like looking at yourself in the mirror and well, just sort of like I, I, the smoke and the, and the, the tinfoil and the, and the little sort of ceramic tube that I use to inhale the smoke and my face and my hand and all this, you know, like I was going to, yeah, I was going to make a, um, 
sort of a pop art, uh, big exploded picture of this experience because as someone who was high on meth, I was also convinced that this was like, this was some heavy truth about humanity. Oh yeah. That I needed to document in the form of a drawing. (laughs) And so for hours and hours, I'm, I worked on this drawing and when I looked at it later, I realized that I had, you know, I, I would draw and erase and draw and erase and draw and erase. And I'd gotten so focused on representing my hand holding the apparatus, representing my hand in an authentic way that you see like the drawing of, of my face right. and the drawing of the smoke and stuff and that, and the, 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 the setting. And it's all like a sort of a reasonable sort of sketch in of the scene. But then the hand is grotesquely detailed <laughs> with every <laughs> single hair follicle, every wrinkle on the knuckles, every, you know, little frayed cuticle that I was just like, you know, oh shit, that little hair follicle I got wrong. Erase, erase, erase. You know, it's no, it's more like this. I mean, I was zoomed in so, so closely on that, that I'm trying to capture like, I mean, it basically just looks like, like, um, a plucked chicken. I'm so, I'm so intent on this. And from the perspective of me at the time, as the artist, I was getting closer and closer to the truth, not that I had lost, you know, that I lost sight of the, of what I was trying to do. Couldn't see the forest for the trees. Um, so in that, in that tweaker culture, that kind of obsession, I mean, if you, all you have to do is go Google like before and after tweaker photos and you see the horrifying plummet of people who become addicted to meth. Yeah. And this is different from Oxycontin, which is the other sort of plague of the, of the nation plague of the mountain States because Oxycontin is a, is not an amphetamine drug. It's a, it's a downer. It's an opiate Mm. and it creates a, an opiate dependency, which is not based on this frantic racing mind. It's the opposite. It, you're, it takes your pain away and, um, you know, it's a, it's a slow, it's a slower drug experience and, um, nonetheless addictive. It's just that it takes your pain away. And when your pain starts to come back, you really want it to go away again. And that leads to all kinds of junkie, junkie crime. So those aren't tweakers. Those are junkies, right? That's the, that's where the, the, in the drug, in the drug world, the line between tweakers and junkies is pretty bold. Mm. You can do both together. Um, a speed ball, that's what killed John Belushi. What's the but, point of doing them together? It seems uh, like they well, would they can't not cancel each other out in a way, or or did I mean how? What's the story on that? Oh, they both they both do their own thing. 
they both work their own magic. Um, you know, you're at that, at the, because you, you are looking for, you are looking for some kind of balance when you're really far out on drugs. You know, you want, if you've been tweaking for too long, you start to feel the lack of sleep. You start to feel the, the, the drug, you start to feel the jitter and the, and the hurt of what you're doing to yourself. And yet you can't stop doing it. And you can get to a point where you're just like, I just want to come off of this, but there's, but if all you have is more meth, you're going to take it. Right. But if you're able to have some downer, if you're able to have some heroin or something to take at that point to like soften the landing, to mellow you out and get you down, you will, that's a, that's a much better route. And then after a while, you're just like, well, I mean, I need a little of this, a little pinch of this, a little eye of newt. Because drugs, well, a lot of drugs work really well together, work really well in concert with one another. You know, a little Percocet. Yeah. Like everything can kind of, you can, you can find your, I mean, there are people who abuse muscle relaxants. Mm-hmm which don't have a psychoactive effect really they just turn your they just relax your muscles so that they don't work very well you know like muscle relaxants where you somebody gave me a bunch of muscle relaxants one time i took them like oh well get high on these and didn't really get high went to sleep woke up the next day went to get up out of bed and flopped on the floor flopped on the floor like a like a fish because my muscles wouldn't support my weight. They were so relaxed. Mm. <laughs> and it's like, you just had to, a, you had to lay down. Yeah. That's an interesting drug to abuse. So, so looking at these pictures, what it seems to me is that what we're seeing is some tweakers. So, th- so these are people who have consumed meth and they came up with an amazing idea that would involve a caper of breaking into my friend's house by kicking it. Mm -hmm. And then once they were in the house, they didn't just rob it and get out. They hung out. They watched TV. They made coffee. They ate food. They smoked cigarettes. And at some point decided they should leave. Yeah. And you can tell this is tweaker behavior. Why? Because the idea is so like, so weird. Or so strange, or what? I mean, it's um. When I see when I see a home invasion where the person, rather than going through a door or window, goes through the wall, like kicks a uh, or punches a hole in the wall mm-hmm. and big enough to crawl through, mm-hmm. that just does not say professional burglar no it doesn't it doesn't say well thought out plan but i mean there had to have been maybe maybe there doesn't but to me i would think there had to have been some kind of casing out of the place so that they said oh these people are out of town this is safe to do like i don't unless 
You know what I'm saying? Like at, 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 at some point they had to have at least had that kind of thinking. Like they didn't just walk up to a house and start kicking it. They had to know no one was home and for them to have decided to like hang out inside the house and like snack and smoke and stuff, you would think that they would have like done that if they felt comfortable. Like I've never planned a break in, but I'm thinking that if I was going to, my goal would be to like get, I mean, I've watched enough movies. You want to get in and out fast. If I'm breaking into a house, my goal is like, make sure no one is there circumvent whatever alarms or traps they have get in get the valuable stuff and like get out of there and be wherever i'm going to fence the stuff as fast as possible i wouldn't want as i as i've thought about this over the last day or so like hanging around in the house smoking that doesn't seem like a thing i would do unless i was really really sure like super confident that i wasn't going to get caught well, you are <clears throat> applying reasonable logic to the situation. Oh, and I did figure out, or I, I have a, a thought on why they cut through the wall to the garage instead of just opening the door to the garage. That would trigger the alarm. Right. So they had to cut through the wall or kick through the wall to get into the garage because there's an alarm on the garage door. Right. Yeah. But like, how did they know it was a wood frame house that they could kick through so easily as opposed to a concrete block? Because they oh. never kick through a concrete block. Can you just tell by looking? Maybe, maybe all Florida homes in that neighborhood were. But I'm saying like, there's some kind of thinking process there. It's, you know. Oh, it's not just a thinking process. Like they, they are, this is the thing. They are geniuses at this <laughs> point in their life. They're, they're not, this isn't, they're not like, the drug doesn't turn them into dumb automatons. Right. The drug turns them into super criminals oh. in their mind. So they they show up. Um, they case the joint for all of fifteen minutes. I mean, what they do is they're going through the the neighborhood right. and they're looking for a house where there's no sign of activity. And I don't know whether there's newspapers piled up on the front porch. Sure, Probably something gave not. it away. But the blinds are all drawn. There's no sign of life. They go around behind. They peek in. It all looks. Like, um, <clears throat> you know, there's a, there's a look to a house where someone needed some sugar and so ran to the store and we'll be back in five minutes mm -hmm. and one where the people are out of the country. You right. just naturally like go around and turn all the lights off. You naturally, you know, you don't leave dishes in the sink when you go out of the country. Am I the only person who has like, uh, lights coming on, on a slightly random timer schedule and probably not but again this like what you are what you are thinking is how if david niven in 1963 was going to scale the outside wall of your house <laughs> in a tuxedo <laughs> right and, sure and cut the glass and come in through a, a hole this is the kind of thing he would be he would be casing it right and the, the light would go on and it would fool him um that's the logic behind that kind of time. I mean, I put timers on the lights in my house, but a tweaker is not sitting across the street casing your house for three weeks trying to figure out your patterns. Like it, th these are total crimes of opportunity. Right. And if you are, you know, if you're, if you're prowling through a neighborhood and looking in and, and 
they were out of the country, so they don't know whether at 11 o'clock at night these guys were creeping around mm-hmm. or 1 o'clock in the morning. And you can just sort of peer in the kitchen window, peer in the uh, through the blinds into the bedrooms and just see, oh, there's nobody in this house. And if there's nobody in this house at 11 p.m., um, there is a chance that at 2 a.m. the family will come home. But if there are, if there are if there's evidence of kids at the house, right, and and there's nobody home at 11 p.m., there's a good chance that they're not coming home. Right. You don't bring your kids home at 2 a.m. Right. So then you're like, well, but I do see it. there's an alarm. Well, let's see. How are we going to get in here? Let's kick a hole through the wall. And they may have done it before. They, they may have learned this technique from some other tw- tweaker. Right. Um, and they may, and the thing is they think it's like fucking foolproof. And that they're they're geniuses, and in this case, they pulled it off. But once you're inside, like to sit and smoke cigarettes and watch TV, the reason they do that is that they haven't they don't have a place where they can go do that in the comfort of their own home. So they get inside, and they're like, "It's a home, just like I grew up in," and they know nobody's coming. And so why wouldn't you sit down, you know, sit down, go to sleep. I mean, the way that the guy broke into my house, he came in through the window. He didn't, he knew, I think he knew I was home or at least he knew enough to be quiet. Um, and he had staged a bunch of stuff by the back door to take and whether he heard me rustle or spooked himself or whatever, Um, he left a lot of the things that he had staged, but he also took a lot of stuff, multiple trips in and out of the house to his car. Um, but the car was stolen. And the thing is you don't like the stuff that they took out of there, the cash is cash. Anything else that they took, they didn't take it to a fence. They took it directly to their dealer. Right. And said, how much ah, right. meth will you give me for this toaster? Right. And the dealer goes, huh, none. And they're like, come on, man. Come on. Give me five bucks worth. He's, the dealer's like, I can't even get five bucks for that. Right. And they're like, oh, fuck. All right. Well, what about this? Well, what about that? And then the dealer takes this stuff in trade and then he takes it somewhere. Mm-hmm. That he Because the dealers typically are trying not to also be tweakers if they're halfway decent at their job. And the, you know, the fact that they found cash is a huge, that's just a huge boon to them. Um, that's like the, that's your dream. What you, what you want to find is cash and guns. Um, because guns, you can, everybody wants guns. You can get top dollar for guns. It's a lot harder, even, you know, a laptop, like you'll get pennies on the dollar for it, but you'll always be able to, to, to get rid of a laptop. You'll all, somebody will always take a laptop or that type of thing, high end expensive shit, you know, a TV you can all, but I mean, imagine getting a TV, one of these giant TVs, imagine like stealing one of those. The thing is they have the car. They had the car inside. They, the car. they could 
they could fill the car up. Right. They could fill it up at their leisure, apparently, with anything that they wanted. Totally great. And at the end, you'll notice that the hole that they kicked to get into the house was small. But the hole that they kicked to get into the garage was big. You're right. So, you know, they had to make that hole bigger. First of all, they had the time to do it, to make it more comfortable egress. But also, you know, I, I'm guessing they're hauling stuff out through it. It's the perfect crime, Dan. But it's mm. a tweaker crime. It's, a, it's 100% tweaker crime. Because who wants that penny any shit anyway? It's only people on drugs. Nobody is providing for their family with this kind of burglary. No. You know, if you're like robbing banks or jewelry stores. Right. Those are, that's a big heist. That's a real caper. This is like very small time. But it's weird the stuff that they took too. You know, an electric razor. Like, what are you going to get from like a somebody's old electric razor? Like, how much can you really get from that? Nothing. Right. That's. It's not like they they took like a somebody or like a Rolex. You well, know, like that. Then you know, or like or like something of real like like valuable jewelry or like a rare painting or something. I don't know. They're hoping they, you know, like they're looking at that and thinking, is that expensive? It seems complicated. Right. It's, it it's, seems, a, it's silver in color. So that's, there's got to be worth something. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it was for them. Maybe he, they just, the guy just wanted it. I assume yeah. it's a guy. Maybe he just wanted an electric razor. It's like, here's one. Maybe. I need a shave. The problem with an electric razor is that it is predicated on access to electricity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's a, so I have a, you know, like a. Are you suggesting these people are, are likely homeless people? Uh, not necessarily, but they are not. Um, I mean, what <clears throat> in America today, the, the definition of homeless person has really changed over time. Mm. Um, and now we use homeless home. The term homeless is, I think much more inclusive than it was before. I think when I was young, uh, when I was in my teens and twenties, someone who was living in their car, I don't think we would have used the term homeless to describe them. Um, someone who was crashing with friends, someone who was pulling it off. Um, the, the whole idea of like being between places and sleeping at Denny's, but not sleeping at Denny's, um, you know, sleeping at Denny's in such a way where you're sitting upright at your table mm -hmm. and you nod off so that the Denny's employees don't a hundred percent feel comfortable kicking you out, but they come over every once in a while and go, would you like more coffee? Right. And you kind of go, Oh, Oh yeah. Yeah. Thank you. A little more coffee, please. Um, I don't think in 1994, 
that that person would have described themselves as homeless or that we as a culture would have described them as homeless. They were in between jobs or in between places or, you know, there were a lot of euphemisms for it. Um, a homeless person was someone who lived in a refrigerator box. Right. Under an overpass. Yeah. And now a lot of the homeless communities in Seattle are tent communities and at you know, somewhere along the line, um, people figured out you could go to a thrift store and buy a tent for not very much money and erect a little domicile. Right. Um, and then as, you know, as that thought technology spread pretty soon, you have whole tent cities. I mean, obviously that's as old as, as Hoover towns or as old as time. But you know, there, there are people now who describe themselves as homeless and by their description, I was a homeless person. I didn't have a home several times in my teens and twenties, but I didn't, I never thought of myself as homeless. I would never use that term. Mm -hmm. I was just couch surfing is what I said. I'm couch surfing. Well, for months, Right. months and months couch surfing on people's couches who didn't know me and didn't want me there. Just, you know, <laughs> go to a party and at the end of the party when everybody else is leaving, just say, Hey, is it cool if I just crash? It's a long way back to my place. Is it cool if I just crash here? And they're like, um, yeah, all right. Fuck. Okay. You're just like crashing in lobbies or learning to sleep sitting upright. Um, I didn't have a car. Somebody that, that was living in their car like I would have been uh, that I would have envied that if it had even occurred to me that I could that I could be living in a car. I mean, I lived in other people's cars. I lived in a Ford Aerostar for a while. I lived in a Volkswagen bus for a while that didn't belong to me. That were parked in other people's carports, <laughs> and they were ti- they were tired of me sleeping on their couch. And they were like, you know, you can go sleep in the Aerostar. I was like, great, thank you. Um, and I, and I was grateful because it's like a place. I had a place that Mm -hmm. I could go, that I knew I could go to. And every, every night wasn't that kind of stress of like, fuck, where am I going to sleep? But I, again, I never would have said homeless. And so these tweakers, I don't think they would describe themselves as homeless, although they might, if they were feeling persecuted and wanted to talk to a social service person Mm -hmm. about, about, um, their benefits, but they're not thinking that way about themselves. They're thinking about themselves that they are master criminals who are living outside the system because they don't buy into the bullshit of the man. Right. And that, you know, that's, that is a, um, a generalization I make based on knowing a thousand, a, a thousand people who have been in, in that situation, including myself, you know, there's nobody the, 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 how a person regards themselves and, and communicates 
how they how they see themselves to others, it changes situationally sometimes thirty times a second. Um, and the idea that that you know anyone is kind of roots themselves and roots themselves in one idea of themselves. Mm-hmm. It's just in my experience, absolutely not as common as having a very malleable sense of oneself, depending on who your audience is. I'm sure there are situations in your life, Dan, where you imagine at least in relationship to, uh, to a certain person or people, right. Or certain institutions, either like actual brick and mortar institutions or thought institutions where you think of yourself in victim terms that you're imposed upon by, by that system. And there are other worlds in which you think of yourself as the, you know, as the person that everyone's depending on. Sure. And and that's true of, you know, of, of all walks of life. And I think when you are, when you're living on the fringe of society, there are a lot more of those doorways you can walk through. Um, because you being a homeowner in a, in a cul-de-sac in Austin, it's a lot harder for you to think of yourself as a master criminal who is <laughs> faking out the world and all of its bullshit. <laughs> right. But if you're living on the fringe of society, depending on who you're talking to from moment to moment, you can not just characterize, but, but truly believe that what you're doing is that, that by living outside of, of the system, you are a, uh, freedom fighter or a, or the one, the last person who isn't bamboozled by the, the like thought control machine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then immediately turn around and say, and again, believe it to yourself that you're a hapless victim of, of, a of a system that, that powers itself on human blood. And then that you are, you know, a victim of your parents or of an, of an abusive time. But then at the same time, you're a, you're, you're the hero of your people. I mean, there's just so many, and these aren't even, this isn't even necessarily coming from a position of mental illness. This is just the nature of being a person on the fringe. I mean, so many times I would sit with a group of people who were, more or less panhandling from passersby. Mm-hmm. We we're all sitting on a bench, sort of passing a bottle around. And right. I was not a, a panhandler, but, but you know, you're passing a bottle around. And if somebody sticks their hand out as people walk by and goes, Hey, spare change, you know, it's not like, not like I had so much pride that I would get up and say, I do not drink with panhandlers. But you know, the, I, the, the, like, the soft eyes that you give to somebody as they walk past in high heels where you say, do you have any spare change? And then as that person walks 15 feet away, you know, your eyes harden and go stupid fucking, you know, like zombie Mm -hmm. slave of the man. Mm -hmm. And then the next person comes along, spare change. I'm just trying to get a 
can of Alpo. <laughs> Fucking slave. And, you know, you oscillate between those two things. And part of it is defensive, right? Part of it is within your mind defending against. Because um, you don't want to. Nobody, nobody wants to live feeling like a victim all the time. You want to have power. You want to give yourself power. And you can do it that way. But also, I mean, there are a lot of people who wouldn't, who, who, and I was one, right? Who believed that the system was so corrupt, any participation in it was complicity in the worst of its crimes. And so the only just thing to do was to live outside it, completely outside it. But to live completely outside it, you have to fully commit and you're uncomfortable all the time. It's awful because the system doesn't want you living outside it. Like it's built to It's built to have everyone inside of it. Yeah. Yeah. And what the system sees, if you are outside it, what the system sees is that you are against it. And so the system has systems in place to put you in jail to, you know, either coerce you into citizenship. I mean, it, it, yeah, coerce you into a place within citizenship, either as a person in jail or as a person who wants to stay out of jail enough that they will get a driver's license and car insurance and a job and an apartment. And that's a burden that it's it's super hard for for people of a certain type to overcome either because they're on drugs or because they're mentally ill or because they are adamant adamantly ill suited to it and that was me for a long time and I was constantly ashamed of the fact that I could not break every tie this is the McCandless problem, right? The into the wild problem where he was adamant about wanting no, he wanted no complicity in the crimes of the West. He wanted to be completely free of the, of the, of systemic encroachment to be a, to be a man in the wild. And so got whatever, some bags of rice and whatever he thought was good, a good group of supplies and moved out into the middle of Alaska. And even he moved into a school bus. <laughs> you know, the, the, the number of people who successfully like go out into the woods, build a, a cabin with stone tools and live completely off the land. I mean, the number of people that can do that is, is effectively zero. But, but the, the, the pull of it, the myth of it persists because it just, because you don't recognize how, how complete the web is, how desperately we depend on it, even at the, even at its simplest, like if you're standing out in front of a Seven Eleven, bumming smokes and panhandling, trying to get a six pack of beer, you are not living outside the system. You're just, you're just hanging on to the fringe of it, sponging off of it. And that seems more noble 
to a lot of people than than submitting to the expectations of it and buying that six pack of beer with the money that you made at the job that you were. Right. And so you can, you can flatter yourself by standing out in front of the Seven Eleven and, and feel like, um, feel like you're not, uh, handcuffed. But you know that within the dialogue that we have about homelessness in the country, like there, this is something that we don't. This is an aspect of it that's very inconvenient to talk about honestly. And the problem is that the, you know, the conservative narrative about homelessness is that they're all loafers and moochers, right? And so if you talk about the fact that, like, well, there is there is within the culture uh, of the fringe a real attitude about civilization that is like, fuck it. I'll take what I can get off of it. And on the left, in order to combat that argument that the right makes that, that, um, that the homeless are just, they just need to get up and get a job on the left. Then there's a, there's a tremendous, um, incentive or impulse to create a, create a narrative where homeless people are more or less noble and have been ejected from the capitalist enterprise because the capitalist enterprise is unfair. And so homeless people are not homeless by choice. They do not have, you know, all of them are prepared to live comfortably and free of crime if we just gave them a place to live and, and three squares a day, you know, and, and neither argument is complete, you know, neither vision of it. I mean, the, the, uh, like the fact that Seattle is rife with homeless and I assume that, uh, that Austin is too, is complex. It's complex. Well, it's and a very, would, it's a very hard problem. I mean, it's more, it's, it's 50 problems is why. Yeah. And that, and the thing is that a mentally ill person who doesn't have support from their family and who has burned every bridge is homeless in a different way Mm -hmm. than someone who did meth and burned every bridge. And often the person that did meth and burned every bridge is either also suffering from a mental illness or their symptoms are indistinguishable from someone with a mental illness. And then there's the person who really was working 60 hours a week, but lost a job because of, of, you know, lost a job because people lose jobs and all of a sudden wasn't able to, or lost an apartment because of, I mean, if uh, the narrative around Seattle is lost your apartment because a developer came in and bought the building and tore it down to build million dollar condos and you were just a regular working class guy trying to support his family and now you're living in your car and now you're in a homeless camp. Like there are those people, but it's not the, that's not the majority story. And, 
And it's tempting to take that, the most heartbreaking version of it, or, or, or rather the heartbreaking version that appeals most to a middle class person. Because a middle class leftist in Seattle does not have very much sympathy for a drug addict or a mentally ill person. They mm-hmm. don't have as much sympathy as they do for for kind of the fantasy of a person who was working real hard and trying real hard and got screwed by capitalism. Mm-hmm. And nobody has any sympathy for somebody who is like on drugs and also um, uh, and also unapologetic, like on drugs and with an attitude mm-hmm. about it. You know, nobody wants nobody. You cannot politically go to a group of voters and say, "I really we need to find housing for this person who is." using drugs and appears to be enjoying it or appears or appears to <laughs> no, think that you're making a good point you know i mean why would you want to do why would you want to foster that big kind of behavior in society yeah, like this, and support this it guy and, and a, condone it this guy's a junkie um but when you talk to him about it he doesn't want to stop doing drugs and also he seems to think he's cooler than you but we need to find free housing for him like nobody is going to sign off on that um, so, you know, so what we do is we, we create, we, we find the stories where it's like somebody just fell through the cracks. They're, a, they're a veteran and they, um, are on disability, but their disability payments don't cover their rent, et cetera, right, et cetera. Right, you know, sure. there are a lot of versions of that. And it's not to say that those aren't true. It's just that they aren't any more representative than any else, anything else. And a lot of the, a lot of the homeless problem is a mental illness problem. Yeah. We don't deal with mental illness in this country. We pretend that a mentally ill person is fine, frankly. And we, and when they have an episode, we take them into the hospital and we give them a couple of days. And then the, and the doctors in the hospital and the nurses, they know that it's not true. But they're powerless. They're not able to because we aren't. We're not able to commit people to institutions anymore. You know, we we decided that that was cruel, and so instead we patch them up and shoo them out the door. Then they walk out the door of the emergency room, and they're just as homeless as they were before, and they're just as schizophrenic or paranoid or bipolar or. Uh, you know, a hundred other things and they just have to go every time, just go out and try and, and, and we do this as though we think that they're two days in the hospital, like put them back on the straight and narrow and now it's up to them. And it's like, no, they're like desperately ill, desperately ill in a way that like, what do you do? How do you have a national dialogue or even a regional dialogue? about the idea that there are people who cannot um, care for themselves. They'll never be able to. Right. No amount of prescription or counseling or coaching. And if you don't, and, and so 
right there, if you take out counseling and coaching, that's 80% of our response to mental illness in this country. Mm-hmm. Send them to a counselor. Well, if none of that, if we just assume like there's a large percentage of the mentally ill that cannot be counseled into health. And we've decided we don't want to warehouse people because it's cruel. What do you do? What is the solution? And America is absolutely mute about it. Like uh, I, I was walking through downtown Seattle one time with a girl from Spain and she broke into tears and she was like, what are all these homeless people? Well, how can this is the richest country in the world? How can there be so many homeless people? And I said, they're mentally ill people that in Spain are being housed in like Catholic, like Catholic church run institutions. And you don't know anything about those institutions and you never see them and you Mm -hmm. don't, you're not monitoring how they're being treated. And for all you know, they're being whipped every night by nuns for having the devil in them. But they're not on the streets, and so you feel like your your system is more virtuous. Unfortunately, we turn them out, close down the state-run institutions because they were awful. But we didn't replace them with anything. We just replaced them with like the streets of the city. Good luck. Hope you fend for yourself. And a lot of them are drunken on drugs because that's the only way they can manage the voices. But it, how do you, how do you get a, how do you get a perspective? How do you adopt a perspective? A lot of the things that, a lot of the things that I've just said would offend people who share my political proclivities because it's just not helpful to to them. You know, it's not helpful to their narrative. But I don't believe that. I don't believe that the, that the homeless problem is a result of moochers. Right. But you you do have to, when addressing the entire question and when trying to appeal to 50% of the people in America who don't share your political belief, you do have to at least address the concept of not moochers, like nobody's loving it, right? Nobody is, is homeless and just like, this is the greatest. There's nobody mooching per se, but there are an awful lot of people that are that aren't noble too. And to, to brush them, to, to, to put like pastel paint on the whole issue and, and describe the whole homeless problem as being one of one that can be reduced to the excesses of capitalism run wild. Mm -hmm. That's not really sufficient either. And it's not, it does, it won't appeal to, you know, Joe main street. Cause it doesn't, it just doesn't comport with your firsthand experience of it. Really. 